September 11th. Welcome back to the Iowa College Basketball Podcast. Got Matt Norlander here with me. And if you're uh, in the state of Florida, we hope you're holding up okay. Scary weekend down there. Lots of our uh, co-workers uh, had to evacuate their homes because if you didn't know, uh, CBSSports.com's offices are, are actually in Fort Lauderdale. So we've been watching this uh, especially closely. I imagine most of you have as well. So again, if uh, if you're down there, here's hoping you're, you're okay and that your things are okay. And if not, uh, uh, we hope the recovery is, is as swift as it could possibly be. Uh, oddly, um, it's been a, a fairly interesting week, past week in college basketball, with, I think, uh, three things worth uh, discussing on this podcast. One, uh, the transfer conversation that was sparked by a report uh, last week. Uh, two, the Houston NCAA case that's rooted in Hurricane Harvey donations. And three, Marvin Bagley being certified for freshman eligibility uh, at Duke uh, sooner than I think most people expected it to happen. So let's let's take them one by one and in that order. Uh, last week, Andrew Slater, who uh, writes for uh, 24-7 Sports, had an article that he posted and published um, that stated that the NCAA could, could vote, uh, the implication I believe being pretty soon, on a proposal that was picking up steam uh, that would allow Division I basketball players, Division I football players, all Division I players, uh, the opportunity to transfer uh, at least once without penalty to another Division I university. He reported that there could be um, some uh, an academic component tied to it, uh, that you might only be able to transfer once uh, freely, the second time you would have to do the normal uh, one-year sit-out. Uh, but uh, the story certainly got a lot of attention within uh, coaching circles. The NCAA pushed back on this a little bit and said, uh, essentially, uh, A, um, there is no vote like on the table. Like It's not something that's going to happen later this year. Uh, Brett McMurphy, our old pal, uh, reported that um, if this were to, to actually become a thing, it wouldn't be for many, many years. Um, I think he reported 2020, 2021, perhaps at the at, at the earliest. Uh, long story, not so long. Um, we're nowhere close to this actually being uh, an NCAA reality. Uh, but like I wrote uh, late last week, it didn't stop college coaches from commenting on it. And so, uh, Norlander, let's just, uh, for the sake of the conversation, hypothetical uh, situation. The NCAA someday does make this a reality where division one basketball players, football players, and every other division one athlete can transfer from one division one school to another division one school and play immediately without having to sit out a year. Is it a good thing for college basketball, a bad thing for college basketball? Would you sign up for this? I would sign up for this. I've gone not back and forth GP, I guess on the transfer issue, but I definitely had a lot more interest in it about four or five years ago. I've been a little fatigued by it uh, in recent seasons. I would definitely sign up for it. I'm not against uh, having players transfer to whoever they want to transfer to, uh, period, without any sort of restrictions, particularly when they are not 
paid to the level that many people believe that college athletes should be paid when you consider the billions of dollars that are coming into the NCAA uh, and its member institutions there. What I haven't seen, so I got a few points on this. One, let's keep in mind that the players that transfer don't really have too much impact, generally speaking. I will say, if you follow college basketball, yes. Be it a grad transfer or someone else, you can make a legitimate case that five to ten players and only five to ten players that transfer in a given year are are transferring to a situation where they're going to become a top three player of impact on a team. Now, those can be very impactful transfers. But generally speaking, you've got guys who are not making much of a dent or an impact, at least for the first year that they'll end up being eligible. And then maybe at best if they transfer, you know, if they go somewhere with their freshman, sophomore year, they don't like it, they transfer, they sit out. Maybe by the time they're a senior, they're, you know, a borderline starter or whatever. Um, what I... What I wonder is, is if this, and I'm not against this, by the way, what I'm about to say, if this were to go through and you had transfers able to go from one school to the other without having to sit a year, you might have a situation. You're still not going to have the best players moving from team to team, but you could have a situation where maybe instead of five to ten players of impact, you up that, maybe you double it a little bit, you get a little more intrigue, and college basketball has a very poor man's version of the NBA's free agency, which I know the NCAA doesn't want any part of, I know college coaches don't want any part of, but I will say that that element of media coverage and fan interest from an NBA standpoint has basically come the 1B to the NBA playoffs. I mean, the, the, the rumor mill and the discussions of player movement in, in the pros I know they're two different entities, but at the very heart of this discussion, if you have that kind of situation for college basketball and you might have two or three former five-star players you know, that didn't quite pan out at one school going to another school, I actually think that does bring a little bit of interest to the sport overall. I get why coaches would hate it, but I actually don't reject that element coming to college basketball. I say that knowing full well that you're still not going to have top 25 players leaving from one school to another, nor should they in almost any in every single case um coaches are against this because obviously it makes their lives a lot harder they're against this because a lot of the coaches obviously played college basketball and the environment of transferring was extremely rare 15 years ago let alone 25 to 40 years ago when most of these coaches were involved in division one or division two or in sometimes division three college basketball so they just it's not how they were brought up you know you earned your keep and if you were good you were hopefully maybe starting by the time you were a sophomore crack the line by the time you were a junior whereas now players want playing time as a freshman and if you're at a top 50 program and you're recruited and go there as a freshman you're expecting uh in a lot of cases to start so i get why it's frustrating in that regard and they they'll really hammer back on just kids wanting to bail out because it's too easy there are some points that they that that are valid, but the reality is you can't, in my opinion, restrict these guys, GP. If they want to leave, just let them leave. And if you've got an issue with potential tampering, I, I got to be honest, this is this is not new. It, it exists to a certain extent already. Um, I think some of the I think some of the reaction is is way overblown. I don't think coaches are going to be egregiously recruiting players 
in handshake lines and before the game right. during layup drills. Um, like I get where the sentiment from that comes from, but ultimately we do agree here. Um, and I'd love to disagree, but I can't. I, I just don't have any issue at all with players wanting to go from one program to another and not having them sit a year. From a college basketball media and fan interest perspective, perspective, I think it's actually better for the game uh, while acknowledging that coaches, to a certain extent, have a point, but there there is a little bit of um, hypocritical attitude involved there as well. So I've talked to coaches about this uh, on and off for years. I had a long, like an hour-long conversation with Tom Izzo about it um, earlier this summer. Um, had a long conversation with Mark Few about it earlier in the summer. Um, subsequent to, um, you know, this becoming a topic of conversation again in a newsworthy way last week, I talked to, I'd probably say, seven or eight different Division One head coaches, some in off-the-record form, others in on-the-record form, and um, they had a lot of interesting perspectives, uh, most of them predictable, uh, most of them against this idea. And so uh, let's just talk through it. Um, I, I'm obviously for this. I've been for this for a long time. Like the column I wrote last week um, about it's time to, like I'm, I'm completely for lifting restrictions on Division One transfers. Like I've written that column three years ago. You know, like I've done this before. It was a different column, different words, different points, but at the same central point, which is um, it's fundamentally wrong to to restrict amateurs um, from from moving as freely as, by the way, their peers in other sports are allowed to move. And I know there are college basketball coaches listening right now that says that say do, do not compare us to soccer. You know that we're different than soccer, and I do know that you're different than soccer. But I also know soccer coaches want to win, just as like they care about their job just as much as you care about your job. Like we don't care about their jobs just as much as you, uh, uh, we don't care about their jobs as much as we care about your job. Basketball's bigger than soccer, clearly. But they care. So if the concerns are coaches will be recruiting right off of our campus, well, I imagine that goes on in soccer too. Like in either way, uh, from that on those central complaints, like coaches will be tampering with our players. Well, I mean, Norlander, you talk to coaches all the time. Don't they always already tell you coaches are tampering with their players? <laughs> like, yeah, like I, they're always complaining about that anyway, right. right? All right, and they and 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 the other complaint is, you know, kids will run at the first sign of adversity. Well, you've been, you guys, been telling me for years, you, you're already dealing with a um, a generation of basketball players who are running at the first sign of adversity. So I'm not trying to pretend this won't escalate those issues, but I don't believe they'll. You know, you guys have been telling me for years that these are already issues, so they won't create new issues. They'll just they'll just escalate them. I acknowledge that this would make a coach's job more difficult. I also acknowledge that it would change the sport. I do not think it would be as bad as everybody makes it out to be, or some people make it out to be, because what you hear now, when I wrote that column the other day, like some of the first replies on Twitter were, how could you be for this? It kills the mid-major. You would never get the Steph Curry at Davidson story. And to that, I say this, maybe you might be right. There's a chance Steph Curry balls out as a freshman at Davidson. North Carolina goes, oh, wow, here's an in-state kid who can really, really shoot it. Let's see if he wants to come play for the Tar Heels. And then maybe Steph says, wow, I would love to play for the Tar Heels. And, and, you know, and then he's leading North Carolina to the NCAA tournament. That is one scenario. 
and it would be possible under this hypothetical proposal. The other scenario is Steph Curry says, you know what? I, I love my coach, and I love my teammates, and I love my school, and I don't want to leave uh, to go be a rotation player maybe at North Carolina, or perhaps I'm starting and playing 33 minutes a game and getting all these shots, but maybe I'm not. Like, remember, even after Steph's freshman year, we didn't know how good Steph was. That didn't come for another year. So, like, maybe Steph does take advantage of those opportunities and every, quote, mid-major player like him, but but maybe not. It's certainly no guarantee. Like, one of the things I heard was in this hypothetical situation, you know, Kentucky, for instance, says, okay, we're bringing in four or five-star guys. We really need some roster balance. Um, let's go see if we can get Landry Shamit to come from Wichita State to Kentucky and, and play and be our, our point guard and be our veteran presence. And, um, yes, under this proposal, hypothetical proposal, Landry Shamit would be uh, like it would be possible for him to do that. But would he really do it? I think for every kid who would take advantage of, quote, moving up to the bigger, brighter stars, there'd be another guy who would say, you know what? I'm cool. I, I don't think every single player would leave the way everybody thinks every single player uh, would leave. Uh, so I don't think it'll be as bad as some people suggest. And and beyond that, I don't really care. And the reason, and I had this conversation with the coach yesterday. I won't name it. But I said, because he was, he, was, he was pushing back on me in a, in a very respectful way. We were just having a good spirited debate, exchanging ideas. I, I thought he made some good points. I hope he thinks I made some. Um, but I, I was talking to this coach and I said, I said, listen, like all, most of the things you're saying right now are true. Like I acknowledge them. I'm not trying to argue on your points. I'm just trying to tell you, you start from a different place than I start. I'm starting from a place of let's do what's most fair for the student athlete and work backwards and whatever issues that presents or creates, we'll deal with them. But I start at that point. I said, you don't seem to start at that point. He said, no, I don't start at that point. I don't think. The primary goal here should be to do what's fair by the student athlete. I think the primary goal should be to do what's best for college basketball because life's not fair and and, and you don't have to be fair to the student athletes. What do you make of that? Um, <laughs> frustrating thing to hear. Uh, I guess without more context of where the coach is coming from. His point was you keep trying to do what's fair for the, the, the student athlete, even if it comes at the expense of college basketball. He said, I think we should do what's best for college basketball, even if it comes at the expense of the student athlete and allowing these players to just move if, after every season if they want to. Um, that's, not, that's not good for college basketball. So that's not something we, as people who care about college basketball, should be uh, concerned with. And so uh, where I, where I counter-argued uh, uh, with him was, okay, if you want to actually start doing college basketball in a way that everything is focused on let's do what's best for college basketball, maybe I'll sign up for that. But, like, that's not what we do. Is playing nine bye games best for college basketball for the Blue Bloods? Like, is that best for college basketball? No. Nobody would argue it's best for college basketball. It's boring. But, but we do it. Why? Because that's the way they sell season ticket packages and make money. Is playing the Final Four in a dome best for college basketball as opposed to a, a conventional arena where it's a more intimate setting? I don't think so. Most people don't think so. feels kind of weird when we do that. But we understand why we do it because like you can put 65,000 people in a, in a building as opposed to 18,000 people and 
that's a lot of money. Is um, uh, what about all these neutral sites? Is that best for college basketball? I think you and I agree it's not. Like we love college basketball on college campuses, but we do it. Why? Uh, because there's money to be made doing that. So, like, if you want to argue we should always do what's best for college basketball, oh, I hear you, but that's not what we do, so let's not start doing it here. That was my counter-argument. Yeah, and as we get this kind of feedback from coaches, which is to be expected, uh, let's remember that, you know, this is a so-called working group that is reaching out for feedback, and depending on the feedback that it gets, then it would go to another stage where it would be under a working proposal, into another stage where it would actually have to even pass from there and given that timeline that's why we're not going to possibly see this until 2020 at the earliest and if college basketball coaches push back on this enough you could see a situation where it doesn't change i think they're in a little bit of a sticky spot because they already don't some do some don't they are they don't love the grad transfer rule which, in my opinion, you, you, you cannot change. Um, that's also an interesting thing because you now have, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to reconcile with a lot of these guys because I actually think that the majority of guys who coach college basketball, I find them to be uh, likable humans that by and large do the right things, great to deal with. So many of them do our kind of coaches thing every year. They're honest. They're fantastic. They do a lot of great things in their community. But then, like, the reality is, like, a lot of these guys will try and prohibit their players from graduating in three years because they know that now players know that if I'm at a mid-major school or even not even, like, even look at the Cam Johnson situation at Pittsburgh where he's at a proud program that's had relevance over the better part of the past 15 years, graduates early, is able to leave Pittsburgh to go to a much, much better situation at North Carolina. And, in fact, Cam Johnson could be the, the ingredient that gives North Carolina a legitimate chance at getting back to a Final Four for a three, third straight year. But you'll have coaches that are trying to restrict their players from graduating early in order to, to qualify, to leave school, take that year somewhere else. And so when you look at that, combine it with the fact that they already resist transfers as it is, while at the same time, so many of them say, well, I, I got to get guys on my team. And if I'm losing guys, then where am I going to get them? I'm going to have to bring them in from the transfer market. Basically, 95% of programs are now operating in this kind of way to the point where when we see coaches in July, so we see them in July 2017, you know, talk about this, that, or whatever. You know, sometimes you'll just get into talking about the game you're watching, the players they're recruiting that are playing in this given game. How many scholarships do you have open for 2018? Well, I got three right now, but... I'm going to use two. Hopefully we land a couple of guys here by the fall. And then they'll outright just save one. Sometimes I've heard coaches say they're going to save two because they know the transfer market is going to be overflowing with players looking to find a home. They don't know who those players necessarily will be. They just know that those players are going to be there. And since the state of college basketball recruiting and program organization has reached this level, they just know I've got to keep that spot open. So come the end of March through the end of may that's when i will fill the scholarship spots i'm going to need for the following season so it's 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 sort of a dense subject and i understand again i don't want to you know be too redundant and repeat myself too much i get where coaches are coming from they do have some legitimate points but ultimately i completely side with the player here if you're not happy in a situation and you want to go somewhere else and by the way 
probably fail there as well or not be what you thought you're going to be because that is the big picture there are so few guys that transfer that actually are worth a damn when it comes to college basketball coverage helping their teams win becoming even relevant players on their own team i i think coaches conflate this issue so much more than it actually is because they're the ones that have to deal with the stress and the pain of dealing with players or their AAU coaches or their parents and they already hate going through this and they don't want to see the problem exacerbated even more by allowing them to transfer without having to sit another year right okay so um you know, a- athletic director you yesterday tweeted a story where they did a comprehensive breakdown of Division One transfers since 2012, and one of the things their research showed, and this actually surprised me, I even like texted with a, somebody who's connected to that uh, website, just like, are we sure about this point? And they were like, it's factually correct, and uh, it was that 59% of Division One transfers actually don't even transfer to another Division One school. Like we hear about these big numbers, like 800 transfers. More than, more than half of them aren't like transferring to a rival or a better school or even a Division One institution. Like they just get out of Division One, often to junior college, and then, and then they return, sure. But like more than half these guys are like totally irrelevant. Like, I mean, so irrelevant, they don't even move to another Division One school. And Ken Pomeroy tweeted back at me when I tweeted that and said that he had, uh, he, he did a, a breakdown of it last year and counted that um, only 263 non-bench warmers went from D1 to D1. And some of those guys were runoffs and, and, and coaching change induced. And so, like, the, the numbers just aren't as staggering or as overwhelming as as some coaches and media members, frankly, make them out to be. But, um, but, but I do acknowledge they would go up. I just don't think it'll be as bad as – as as the doomsday people think that this that this rule change would make it because I fundamentally believe most relevant players at relevant programs you know what they want to do stay right where they are you know that that's what most relevant players at most relevant programs want to do you know they pick the school for a reason uh, unless there's a coaching change or they're just trapped on the roster like at the end of the bench or like or just or something like or homesick something like that most of them just want to stay where they're at and that will i don't believe that most of them stay where they're at because they don't want to sit out a year i think most of them stay where they're at because they just want to be where they're at and so this rule change wouldn't affect them in any way i acknowledge that the numbers would go up i just don't think they would be drastic my central point in the column and this is one i've made before and i think it's very difficult to 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 push back against is that this is, you know, this transferring without restriction, if your biggest fear, and by the way, I don't know if this should be the biggest fear, but the, uh, the prevailing thought about this issue is that the biggest fear will be exactly what I talked about with Davidson and Steph uh, earlier, which is that if you're at the low major level or the mid-major level, if you get a good player, you can't keep him. Because he, you know, the big boys are going to come in and offer him an opportunity to play in a Power Five league on national television, um, chartering, you know, on chartered flights, five star hotels, so on and so forth. And I acknowledge that that will happen. I just don't think it'll happen across the board. I don't think that every low major and mid major good player will will elect to to move up to a Power Five league when given the opportunity. I think some will just say. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm happy where I'm at. Um, but one of the points I've made, if that is your fear, that is 
no different than how the coaching profession works. Because here's the truth. The overwhelming majority of low major and mid-major players in college basketball right now are, are at their current schools for the exact same reason their coach is at their current schools. Because that's as good as they can get. They all have dreams of, of coaching at a higher level. I shouldn't say all. I shouldn't say all. Some are happy where they're at. Most. Shout out to Rick Berg. Shout out to Rick Berg. Shout out to Devin Downey. Shout out to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to the homie, Terry M.F. and Teagle. Some are happy just where they're at. But most, like if you offered them a, a job, bigger job in a bigger league for more money, they would they would want it. They, they, they just have not been given that opportunity yet. Same thing for the low major, mid-major players. Like, like, with all due respect, nobody grew up wanting to play at Moorhead State. You know? I mean, maybe there's somebody. But no, they, they dream of playing at Kentucky. They end up at Moorhead because that's the best situation they can get. Uh, and God bless them. Like, that's better than most situations. Like, nobody was asking me to do anything in, in college on scholarship, right? So I'm not trying to be dismissive or, or discount uh, the ability of those people. I'm just setting a scenario for you. So the coaches are at the low major, mid-major level because that's the best they could do at this moment. Same thing with the players. And then what happens every single year, whether it's Chris Bird at Little Rock or Kevin Keats at Wilmington, uh, every year there's a coach that proves himself to be probably better than the job he has. And there's an athletic director, probably first a search firm, but eventually an athletic director who says, you know what, that guy's good. Uh, you know, he's been killing it at that place. I think he could work at our level. I would like to give him an opportunity to work at our level. And you know what they almost always do? Go. They almost always leave. And you know what they almost always say? It was an opportunity too good to pass up. It's always been my dream to work at that level. And you know what we almost always do? We shake our head and say, yeah, I understand. Good luck and congratulations. So what is the fundamental difference between that and a player doing the exact same thing? Like saying, okay, I'm, I'm now at... Uh, Chattanooga, because it, I always dreamed of playing at Tennessee, grew up in the state of Tennessee, always wanted to be a Vol, I'm a big Vol football fan, but coming out of high school, I wasn't good enough to go to Tennessee, or either the Tennessee coaches didn't think I was good enough to go to Tennessee, maybe they missed on me, whatever, but now I'm at Chattanooga, and I'm an all-league player, and now Rick Barnes is on the phone and saying, hey, uh, we saw you in high school, uh, we, we might have messed this up, but man, if it was really your dream to be a Vol, come be a Vol, close your career out playing in the SEC. What's so wrong with that kid saying, okay, I'm going to go do that? How is that any different than Kevin Keats leaving Wilmington to go to NC State? And when I see coaches say, you can't just let these players leave because, um, you know, you got to think about what that does to those low major and mid-major programs. Like, get out of my face. Because you know what is more devastating than a player leaving a low major, a good player leaving a low major and mid-major program? You know what's more devastating than that? A good coach leaving a low major or mid-major program. And I have never ever, ever met one coach who turned down a bigger opportunity and said in his explanation, I just can't leave right now because I thought about what it would do to my current employer, how, how disruptive that would be to this program, and I don't want to disrupt my program like that. Coaches don't say that. They might not go because it's not. they don't think it's the best opportunity for them. They think it's better to be more patient. It's not enough money. Um, they don't want to move their family. They've got a great team coming back. But they never stay where they're at be over concerns of what leaving would do to their current employer. 
So, like, get out of my face with, like, these players should be concerned with what it would do to their current school if they were to leave. And so uh, I just, like, I, I can't push back against that um, any harder than, than I've been doing for years. And as long as coaches are going to work at the low major and mid-major level, and when they prove themselves to be awesome, bounce basically at the first opportunity to do so, like, I don't think you – I think at that point you lose the right to be upset when a player basically just follows the same career path that you've that you've shown them. Uh, I agree. I have nothing really to add to that. You kind of just uh, slammed the bullseye there on that. Okay, well, then let me ask you this because I thought this was interesting. So, most coaches are against this. We know that. I, I think uh, Evan Daniels wrote about this. He quoted Chris Mack. He quoted Archie Miller. He quoted Kermit Davis. Uh, Nick Saban was quoted last week against it. Um, like most coaches are against this for all the obvious reasons that we've stated. I've talked to two coaches who said they're for it. And one was TJ Otzelberger, South Dakota State. And the point he made, and, and, and I talked to another coach last night, and I'm going to ask you what if you agree with both of them, because I thought it was just an interesting perspective that hadn't been trotted out by a coach yet. TJ's point was, um, listen, TJ's worked at Iowa State. He's worked at Washington. He's been on both sides of the transfer market, right? He's, he's watched Iowa State lose uh, Wesley Johnson. He's watched, I think he was at Washington when Nigel Williams-Goss left. He's also been on the, like, because he was at Iowa State, he, like, saw all those transfers come into Iowa State. And one of the, the points TJ made was, Every, he didn't say every, he said most. Most, he might have said every, but I don't want to put words in his mouth, so let's just say most. He said most of the transfers I've seen, whether it's guys we've lost or guys we've gotten, it is usually tied to, in some way, the reality that that transfer did not have a strong relationship with, with the head coach. And so when I look at this from my perspective, this is what he was saying, is that I'm, I'm the type of coach who's going to work hard to have a great relationship with my players, especially the, the ones who are meaningful, the ones who matter. Like, you know, I'm with Mike Dom all the time. He's like, I don't think it will hurt me as much as some low major and mid-major coaches think because, first off, the high majors, they don't want my and, – and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but he, his point was the high majors, they don't want my eighth guy on my team. You know, they want my best player. Well, I'm going to have a great relationship with my best player. And so, I, I, like, I, I don't know that it's just going to be automatic that my best player is going to leave me for a better opportunity. And he said, now, I might be proven wrong because, uh, you know, Mike Dom would be a perfect candidate for this. And Mike Dom might be a graduate transfer possibility, right? He will be a junior um, at... South Dakota State this year, a redshirt junior. So, like, if Mike Dom wants to leave South Dakota State after this year and play immediately under the grad transfer rule, he's going to be able to do that. And so TJ's point was, like, I, maybe Kansas comes in and they say, hey, if it's always been your dream to be a Jayhawk, come on. And maybe Mike Dom takes advantage of that. But he said, I think I, I've at least got a shot to keep him, to have him turn down Kansas and stay at South Dakota State because he has a legacy here because he has a great relationship with his teammates, because he's got a great relationship with me and my coaching staff, because we've worked hard to develop that. And honestly, 
he said, so I'm not, I, I am not, I'm not planning on not having Mike Dom two seasons from now, even though he will have bigger opportunities in South Dakota State. And the reason I don't, I'm not certain I'll lose him, I don't even think I'll lose him, is because of, of the relationship I've built with him. And if you're a coach who builds relationship with your players, you probably won't be a victim of this nearly as often as you think. He said, and you know what? The other side of it is, if Mike Dom's dream really is to play at Kansas, and, uh, you know, after being completely off the radar as a high school player, he, he then has an opportunity as a senior to do that, I'll just hug him and tell him good luck. Like, I'll be happy for him. Like, it'll, it'll, it'll hurt my program, but my God, how could I be upset about a kid like that um, reaching his dream? So I thought that was an interesting, like, A, I got no problem with him. Because, like, yeah, TJ didn't say this, but he implied it, certainly. Like, if Kansas wants me after next year as their head coach, I'll probably have to do that. You know, so if Kansas wants Mike Dom after next year, like, I, I can understand why he would want to do that. And I would wish him well, but I also don't think it's certain that he would do that because... I've got a great relationship with that young man. What do you like? Does that make sense to you? It's refreshing to hear TJ say that. I do think, you know, we've been broadly critical of the coaching profession for the better part of the past 20, 25 minutes. I will say, in my opinion and from my experience, that there are probably a decent number of coaches that would share TJ's view on that. Um, when the rubber hit the road, I don't know if they would totally. Uh, <laughs> echo his sentiments uh, I guess that would be remain to be seen but I could totally see TJ accepting the situation for what it would be if it went that way and Dom was recruited away to a place like Kansas because he's probably going to be good enough to uh to be that kind of player at Kansas in a year from now but um yeah definitely oh by the way could you imagine like Kansas not this year but next year with like Diedrich Lawson and and Mike Dom <laughs> like whoo without a doubt <laughs> so there there's there are there are probably coaches that side with TJ when it comes to that because they also know there are also coaches out there that um, probably have the the confidence that if this were to take effect they would be able to work it to their advantage um, more than necessarily lose players and the last thing I want to tag this conversation with is you mentioned how many guys uh, leave D1 altogether and it would be a problem to lose you know, really star players at the at the mid-major level, the bigger programs, that's fine. Let's just also remember that there are plenty of players that transfer down just in general. Uh, guys, even at like the A-10 level, let alone the Big Ten or SEC level, who are recruited, don't stick there. They drop down, they play at, at a different level, and they, they go on to have fine careers there too. So the mid-majors aren't void of getting talent. Uh, it flows, the river goes both ways in that regard. So to, to put a seal on this uh, it's worthy of discussion analysis there's no doubt about it i do feel there's just a, a wee too much hand-wringing over this issue which in the big picture i'm not convinced if we if this goes into effect tomorrow and we look at college basketball five years from now i'm not convinced it makes too big of a difference on the overall climate of college basketball, both the way that it's played and recruited and, and how basically the general public you know tracks and follows the sport i want to bounce one more idea off of you then we'll move on uh, so last night, um, Steve Forbes, the East Tennessee State coach, was he was in Mississippi recruiting, and uh, so he was like literally driving back by my house uh, last night. So I said, okay, we'll grab a late dinner, and uh, and and watch the Cowboys beat the Giants, which is what we did. And so, um, you know, I, I I wanted to have this discussion with him, 
because he's dealt with a lot of transfers, like both at you know at Wichita, Texas A&M, Tennessee, any of the places, uh, Louisiana Tech. He's been an assistant, and now of course, like his program at East Tennessee State, you know, that went to the NCAA tournament last year, and just his second year as a head coach at the Division One level, like um, you know, it was there's a lot of Division One transfers that were, um, you know, he's 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 benefited from them, and so I I said. I said, oh, what do you think of this possibility of um, a penalty-free Division One transfer situation? And I said, and do not, because we're sitting here eating sliders, um, you know, face-to-face. Don't tell me you agree with me just because you do or just because you're here. Like, if you think I'm being ridiculous, I want to hear your points of view. Because trust me, I've had conversations over the past few days with Division One coaches who said, GP, I love you. You are so wrong on this one. Like, like really, really wrong. So I said, if, if I'm wrong, I want to hear. I want to see if, if what you're saying uh, lines up with what other guys have said. And he said, you know what? I'm for this, and I'll give you two reasons. He said, one is, I, I'm just, I, I think it's fundamentally wrong for me to be able to run off a player and him have to sit out a year. I, like, I think that's, that's just that we have to do something to avoid that. Like, I can, I can run off a player that I sign who moves here, creates friendships here. I can run him off after a year if I decide he's not good enough and he has to sit out of here. Like, that's not okay. I struggle with that. This is what Ford was saying. Like, I don't think that's right. And so this would um, this would end that. And so I'm for it for that reason. He said, secondly, I'm not sure this is a bad thing for me. He said, everybody thinks that this would be complicated for everybody, but devastating for low majors and mid majors um, because we would be losing our best players to high majors after every season. And he said, maybe that'll be the way it goes, but I'm not sure. He said, because here's the deal. A little bit like what TJ said. You know, nobody wants my ninth best player. But you know who I want? I want Clemson's ninth best player. I want Kansas State's ninth best player. I want uh, Arizona State's ninth best player. Like, And and those are the guys you can get. Because you know what they are? Pissed off. My best player is not pissed off. My best player is happy. He's probably first team all league. Uh, probably just played in the NCAA tournament. So, like, you, you know, the big boys can come try to get my best players, and they might, or my second best player, and they might. But I'm gonna have a strong relationship with that kid. We are. We're gonna have been. We've, we've won. Um, he's getting all the shots he wants. He's scoring all the points. He's getting all the honors. There's no obvious reason for him to leave unless he just wants to be at a higher level. But you're going to be a role player at a higher level, not the star at the higher level. Are you comfortable with that? He's like, I think I can convince that kid to stay. He said, but if I go after a middle-of-the-road Power 5 program's eighth best player, you know who that guy is? He's probably a former top 150 recruit who thought he was going to be a starter, and now he's playing seven minutes a game, and he's pissed. Like, that's the guy I can get. So I think I end up having a stronger roster because for every great player I lose, I'm going to keep one. And I think I can, go, I can go fill my roster every year with frustrated high major players. He said, so, like, I'm not freaked out about this at all. I think I, he said, I think I could turn this into a positive for me. Where I think it actually hurts, and this isn't what most coaches have said to me. He said, where I think it actually hurts is the high majors. It's not, you won't see as many high majors taking our best players. You'll see us taking their frustrated players. And I don't think, I, I think... Like, I had not heard that yet, but that makes some sense to me. Yeah. that I mean, I kind of alluded to that when I was saying that guys will transfer down. Um, 
I think it'll still go both ways. I, I don't necessarily. I like. I definitely think that there will be a situation there. It's the one thing that those players need to do, though, that are that are playing in the ACC, Pac-12, Big Ten, Big 12, etc. Um, they, you know, are they going to be good? It's plenty. Plenty are fine with this, but then it's it's a matter of okay, do I do I really want to you know take a step down? A significant step down in the league, uh, and if I'm going to do that, you know, how's it going to help or hurt my? Because all these players think they're going to the NBA. Right. Uh, how's it going to hurt my pro prospects or, or getting drafted or going overseas and all that stuff? So he's got he's got some decent points. I'm not convinced that it would uh, hurt the majors more than the mids, but it's certainly one perspective, and he's very very right in that uh, guys that are basically sitting seven to ten on the depth chart at any top eighty program are the the prime targets for any school that falls in that 100 to 200 225 range they're looking to add a guy that who instantly becomes a top two top three player at worst on their roster if they can recruit him down there uh, let's switch gears um the past week has uh, seen the recovery efforts uh in uh houston uh, continue to go on uh notably uh, at the university of houston where kelvin sampson as you've documented for cbssports.com uh, started a drive on Twitter that I think exceeded even his own ambitious expectations. And so this was a uh, perfectly happy um, and inspiring college basketball story. And it still is, uh, but it got messy um, late last week. And I just want to walk people through the timeline uh, so that uh, we can understand exactly how this went down. So I believe it was 14 days ago. Kelvin Sampson tweeted, hey, we're in trouble down here. We need help. I'm paraphrasing, but his central point was, I know college basketball coaches. You have access to gear, to shoes, shirts, shorts, stuff. Um, you know, send me, I forget the particulars, was 20 pairs of, 20 shirts and 10 pairs of shoes or something like that. And the response was unbelievable. Like from uh, the biggest programs in America to his rivals. Like I was told, um, SMU is among the schools that sent it more than anybody. Like on the, like if you were looking at who sent the most stuff, like like SMU and Houston recruit against each other. Like I'm not saying that uh, those staffs hate each other because I don't know that at all. I'm just saying they're rivals. Like they, it, when you recruit heads up in state against somebody, it can get kind of uh, dicey sometimes. And like SMU was one of the schools I'm told that stepped up in a really very big way and said, hey, here's all sorts of stuff, you know, whatever else you need. So it really did like – uh, I don't know. It, like it, 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 everybody put their differences aside, at least temporarily, and said, "Okay, here's an actual way, a tangible way we can help. Let's do it." And so, the boxes were coming in, boxes, boxes, boxes. And last Thursday, a television station in Houston went to do a story on this, and one of the things they noted is something that you had also reported, which is that their hands at, at Houston were tied a little bit because it's not as simple as, okay, we've got this stuff. Let's go get it into the people's hands uh, who need it because it could possibly be an NCAA issue. Technically, uh, according to the rules, an NCAA issue because uh, if, a, if a prospective student athlete were to get shoes that delivered by the University of Houston, it could be considered an extra benefit. Family members, same deal. So entire school districts in the Houston area were like technically off limits. And Houston had applied for a waiver. And 
I mean, it defies common sense to think that that waiver wasn't going to be granted. I don't think anybody ever thought that that waiver wouldn't be granted for the NCAA to, you know, everybody assumed that the NCAA would would, would eventually just say, of course, do what you got to do. You know, like, whatever. You've got no issues with us. Um, but as of Thursday afternoon, when Houston's compliance director is on camera talking to this television station, uh, Houston had still not been informed, according to Houston, that it was okay to, to move forward. And she said this, and it became part of a, a larger story, uh, mostly because Jay Billis tweeted it late Friday night. And then Dan Wetzel tweeted it Saturday morning, and then everybody started tweeting it, and the NCAA started taking a public relations beating because it's, you know, they, they make for a pretty easy target sometimes. Um, you know, the, the obvious question was, come on, NCAA. You've you, you got people trying to do great things for people who need something. Like, get, get out of the way. Now, the NCAA subsequently tweeted Saturday morning, hey, we told the American Athletic Conference on Thursday that Houston was cool to just go forward however they see fit. Go do what you want to do. Uh, I believe her name's Julie uh, Dubois at Houston, who's the compliance director. Let me look that up. I want to make sure I get it right. But she told me that they did not get that message, confirmation of that message, until um, uh, Lauren Dubois, I should say. I'm sorry. Lauren Dubois. Um, she's an associate AD in charge of compliance at Houston. Um, she told me on Saturday morning they didn't get that confirmation until Friday. So maybe there was a communication breakdown somewhere. Either way, my point was this. It's another public relations nightmare for the NCAA, even if it were only a temporary one. And God, it was so easy to avoid it. And, and most of the times when the NCAA takes a beating, whether it's from me, Jay Billis, Dan Wetzel, or just the general public, it is all something where you go, you guys could have avoided this if you'd have just like been proactive and like been a little smarter about how you went about it. And yet they just never seem to learn their lesson. And this was another episode of that. Is there, uh, was, the, was the social media beating, I'll ask you this, because you reported on all of this. Was it too heavy, uh, directed at the NCAA, unnecessary, unfair, or is it is it completely fair and the NCAA should have could have avoided it but just like misstep once again? Uh, it got a little a little too group thinky. Um, easy story to kill the NCAA over, given what the Houston uh, area television station was reporting, which was not fully encompassing the reality of the story. I, you know, I talked to Kelvin Sampson last week in the midst of him and his staff and so many people there just sorting the boxes, unpacking, getting things in order, repacking, preparing them all to go out. And he mentions to me, you know, just the fact that they, they cannot distribute to entire school districts, like cannot bring this stuff to people and families that are in need. And this is, you know, it's just, it's an extra t-shirt or two for this family and a pair of shoes for that kid and uh, some nice polos for these guys and these girls and all this stuff, right? They just can't deliver it because they could. I actually said to him, I was like, well, you, you could just do this, and I don't think the NCAA is going to charge you with anything. But it is Kelvin Sampson, by right. the way, who uh, got into trouble at Oklahoma and then got a five-year show cause at Indiana for rules that are no longer illegal, by the way, that had to do with contact using the phone and <laughs> – he was a man ahead of his time in many ways. <laughs> Things that he did that got him in trouble with Indiana uh, 
are totally allowable uh, in this day and age. But that that's all just background for it. it's Kelvin Sampson. He knows that he's just not he's not going to flirt with any of that stuff. Even though my opinion is that had they done this, he never would have even gotten remotely close to in trouble. Uh, because the NCAA is not like it's not a heartless organization. The people in Indianapolis knew what was going on. The NCAA should have gotten ahead of this um, and simply, and it actually would have been uh, applauded for doing so. Why it didn't do this, I, I can't answer this question. But if it had simply come out, like the day that Kelvin Sampson's tweet went viral and the coverage of that was so obvious that you saw all this stuff coming in. Because, by the way, you know, I, I called up Scott Drew real quick in reporting the story on just Houston being overloaded with all these packages scott drew said you know i had to check with my compliance officer to make sure what we were sending was above board and allowable and all that stuff so this is just a part of the process that happens every single time whenever you are sending anything officially you're going to check with your compliance officer to make sure that it's on the up and up and everything is clear and above board i don't understand why the ncaa didn't get ahead of it and say hey just put out a three sentence memo man like that's all you need to do say we see what kelvin sampson has done here we understand there are hundreds of boxes making their way to the houston area we're just putting out a public notice that no waiver process needs to be had here uh the program and sampson are free to distribute all the goods that are being donated to anyone and everywhere around the greater houston area and the affected uh communities towns etc if you do that you never have this issue but because houston went through the proper protocol here that's why the NCAA becomes this target, and it was, it was a little, a little over the top, in my opinion, because the school was doing what it needed to do. It was taking the proper steps. The NCAA was just slow to act. So if you want to criticize the NCAA for that, you're totally within bounds. Um, but Houston was just simply taking the steps that it knew it needed to take in order to get this done. And by the way, the other piece of context here that's important is that Houston has so many packages it's more than the school can even realistically handle for distribution so it was already going to be outsourcing so many of these donations to major charities both national and local around the houston area to help them get them to people in need because just think about it like you know you're doing as best as much as you can but from an infrastructure standpoint you cannot possibly know where these goods need to be brought to who to bring up to, when then it will be done. This is going to be, Samson told me, this, like, they've started to send boxes, but this is going to take weeks on weeks. Like, they're not even convinced that by the time the college basketball season starts that all of this stuff will have gotten to where it's going to eventually wind up because there's still, like, Houston, there's still parts of it underwater. They're still trying to figure out who needs it, what homes are destroyed, who's lost what, what communities needs what. So it was, uh, I, I get the backlash just to me some of it was just a little over the top because it was such an obvious easy thing to attack the NCAA over that they were they were never not going to not allow this to happen what I was unaware of because I had talked to Samson I didn't follow up was the NCAA even though Houston said they got official confirmation a day after what the NCAA said by Saturday morning when this thing had caught fire Houston was already fully in the clear the NCAA yeah. had already had already you know so imagine I, I imagine for the people working with the NCAA <laughs> To see this happening on Saturday morning, I mean, they just had to be cursing to the high heavens. Like, we just can't catch a freaking break here. Like, we already we cleared them to do this, didn't even make them go through an official waiver process. And we've got all these, you know, media members with huge social media followings just killing us over this. We don't deserve it. But your column was on point. 
they simply could have been proactive about this. And perhaps this is the one situation finally, maybe not, it is the NCAA, but going forward, if there's anything remotely similar, if you get ahead of it, you just you dodge all this unnecessary bad PR. That's the problem. Uh, like, no, I don't think anybody, it never even occurred to me that the NCAA would stand in the way of Houston delivering these goods. And it is also worth noting that though they didn't get, um, according to the NCAA, permission until Thursday, according to Houston, until Friday, it really didn't prevent them from doing much. They were still in the process of gathering and sorting and like trying to figure out exactly what to do. So um, there was really no tangible negative effect to this. But ultimately, this is a, it's a public relations failure. And they've got an entire team of PR people with the NCAA, some of whom I'm friendly with, and they just they didn't do their jobs well here. Because here's the reality. The point isn't, because this is the point the NCAA people try to make. Houston asked for a waiver on a Wednesday. We gave it to them on a Thursday. Or they asked for permission on a Wednesday. We gave it to them on a Thursday. Fine. Here's your problem. You should have never been in a position where the Houston compliance director can be on TV saying, we're, we're waiting to hear back from the NCAA. We do not know. Uh, right now, we, we giving this, distributing this would put us in violation of NCAA rules, and so we're waiting on the NCAA. You cannot have her in a position saying that on television. Period. End of story. And so once you allow that to happen, then that story gets is, is on television. Then late Friday night, Jay Billis tweets it. Okay, even if you've already messed up and you have, when Jay Billis tweets it late Friday night, you got to be on it and immediately retweet Jay Billis with like your words above it and say, um, contrary to what this story says, Houston does have permission. We gave it to them on Thursday. Perhaps the compliance director wasn't aware at the time this was shot, but this is no longer the reality. We've given Houston permission to do whatever Houston wants to do. Instead, it took them, I believe, 12 to 13 hours after Billis sent that story into a viral situation to, for them to, to react. That's too slow. You can't do that. And my point in the column was this. Honestly, when you see Kelvin Sampson tweet that, at, on Saturday it was 12 days ago, 12 days earlier, Kelvin Sampson had tweeted, hey, this is what we're trying to do. It went, everybody retweeted it. You, if you, you didn't have a heart if you didn't retweet it and you're connected to college basketball. So I'm assuming these NCAA people saw it because, like, they follow all of us on Twitter. You've got to, at that point, somebody's got to be smart enough in that building to pick to know to pick up the phone and call the compliance director, Kelvin directly, anybody on that campus, and say, hey, as I'm sure you know, this could technically be an NCAA problem. But we want you to know you will have no problems from us. We'll deal with the paperwork however we have to deal with the paperwork later. But just go do your thing. And we're proud of you for trying to help and stay safe. And we hope you're doing okay. Like, you've got to be smart enough to make to first make that decision in the building, which is an easy decision to make. Whoever's got the power to do that just has to do that quickly. And then you've got to make sure Houston knows. So that the first time whether it's Matt Norlander calling Kelvin Sampson or a television station in Houston sitting down with the compliance director, when somebody asks, so what's, you know, what's the status of the situation as it relates to the NCAA, whether it's Kelvin or, um, or Lauren Dubois, they say the NCAA was amazing. Like before we even knew what we were doing, before the first package even arrived, we'd already been on the phone with them and they told us to do whatever we need to do 
like you, you yeah we can find places in the rule book where what we're trying to do might be in violation of something but they've assured us they're not standing in our way whatsoever like can you imagine kelvin sampson saying that to a television station kelvin sampson with his history of the ncaa kelvin sampson talking positively about the ncaa that's yeah. the failure from the ncaa's perspective that they didn't they they could have made they made themselves a part of this great story instead they took a pummeling on Saturday morning for no reason whatsoever. And so I know that the NCAA people, because they were tweeting about it, weren't happy with Mike Allen. Like, I, you go read what I actually wrote. I didn't beat them up for standing in the way of Houston. I never thought they were going to. My criticism is pretty simple. you got to be smarter than what you were with this because you took a social media beating Saturday morning and you didn't have to if you'd have been proactive. Uh, and, and, A, like – 12 days earlier, made it clear to Houston this isn't a problem. Or at the very least, when you see Jay Billis tweet it late Friday night, you get on top of it then before Dan Wetzel's got a chance to get on it and me and uh, uh, Jeff Borzell, everybody who covers college athletic basketball. Before you let all those people get on it, you've got to clarify. To clarify after the fact, like that, you cannot, what's the saying, unring a bell? You cannot unring that bell. And it's just a... A, a, a PR failing. And so I don't, I know people weren't happy with that column. Some of the people in that building in Indianapolis, but like, yo, I, I, I'll retweet it again. As soon as this podcast is over, like the points I made in that column were rock solid. Learn from it. Sit down in a bit, sit down in your conference room and learn from it. Cause you guys messed up. Yeah. And so let me segue here. Cause until I was involved in two stories, we're going to yeah. on. The other one is, how is it possible? Marvin Bagley got cleared before Houston. <laughs> who who had that? Who had yeah, that bet made? And, and like, you know, I figure most of our readers are understand this, but the the people responsible for clearing Marvin Bagley are not the people that would. Uh, I, I'm, it's a joke. I know what you're saying. Uh, I'm just, I'm just them. But yeah, so Bagley uh, has been completely cleared. He is academically cleared, and a source told me that he was cleared from an amateurism standpoint weeks ago. Um, what this tells me is that the Bagley family. Um, was hyper aggressive and clearly, I mean, they just had their shit together when it came to this GP. They knew what they wanted to do. They knew what ducks they had to have in a row. And obviously, Duke, which, you know, as you have reported and people in the business clearly understand, Duke was simply ahead of everyone else recruiting Bagley when it came to the situation of getting him into school for this yes. season. There are definitely, definitely, definitely coaches super cynical about this decision. They just don't think that if Bagley was at a different school, one, that he would be cleared this quickly, and two, if he would even be cleared overall. But for whatever reason, he is. I'm not disputing the transcript. And, in fact, the only way we'll ever really know is is if Bagley himself decides to talk about this um, and, and kind of lay out what he did or – if it can be uh, reported out and uncovered one way or the other. But um, he's he's good to go. He's going to be on that roster. He's going to play. And you can take it whatever way you want, GP, just real quick. I mean, I, I, I wrote a quick column on Friday because I, I felt it warranted. To me, this actually makes Duke super compelling because of how young but how talented they are. It also makes Duke compelling because – Trayvon Duvall is going to have the ball in his hands. Grayson Allen's a senior, the guy who's, you know, been a top 10 player in the sport in the past and then had just the erratic season last year. Bagley's the most talented player on the roster. Who's going to become the alpha on that team? I think that is super intriguing overall. And then 
yeah, if you want to hate the NCAA and if you want to hate Duke even more, this gives you even more ammunition because I think that this is going to be something that if and when Duke is a really, really good team, there's just going to be a lot of cynicism around it. It's just going to be, you know, why was Bagley even on this team? Why is he even eligible to begin with? He shouldn't even be part of that. Whether that opinion is right or wrong, I think that's going to be an element that just exists with this Duke team this season. And with that brings, obviously, more hate than normal, a lot more interest. And so from a, from a college basketball perspective, I actually think it's good for the game. But, yes, this is certainly uh, it's a relatively accelerated timeline here. And Bagley only, he officially graduated, by the way, high school on September 1st. Uh, he finished the one final test that he had to take. And from there, once that test was finished, that's when it went to the NCAA. They got the whole thing reviewed in essentially a week's time, less than that. And, and so here we are. Listen, the, the easy response to all of this is like, come on. Like if he goes to, um, I don't know. In, literally anywhere other than Duke, does he get cleared for freshman eligibility this quickly? Uh, that's what casual college basketball fans were tweeting on Friday or whenever this was. It is what um, Kentucky fans were tweeting <laughs> over and over again. And I hear you. You like, I mean, I I'm, I, I understand why folks would be uh, cynical about it. Uh, the truth is, because I had a lot of people say, "Why don't you write this?" And, and uh, just so you know, I'll, I'm. I'll almost never take your column suggestions on Twitter, angry basketball fan. Uh, but, like, the truth is, I don't know. I haven't seen Marvin Bagley's transcript. And so what if the transcript just looks perfect? Like, you just look at it and you go, okay, it's all here. Like, what is there to argue about if it's all there? And so I will say that um, though Marvin's father, like, tried to imply – like when I reported this back in July that, that they were attempting to reclassify, um, you know, tried to like, oh, well, hey, CBS Sports knows more than me. Go talk to them. Like try to discount oh, yeah. it. I know. It's, yeah. it's funny to look back. The, the truth is they, they were working on this for a long, long time and, 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 and intelligently working on this for a long, long time. And so if, like it is possible that the transcript just is fine because I will tell you the Duke staff, they, they always thought – from the first time this became public, uh, that it was a possibility, they always thought it was going to happen. Like, they were never like, yeah, we'll see, going to be tough. A lot, some people in basketball circles thought it would be tough. I don't think they thought it was going to be tough. And so it's possible that they submit the, res uh, the transcript, rather, and it just looks great. And so the NCAA says, okay, there you go. My only question would be, how do you get through what amounts to an amateurism investigation with a consensus number one player who's changed high schools a bazillion times and summer programs a bazillion times? How do you get that done inside of a week? Yeah, it's a fair question. Because um, what the NCAA, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what they've acknowledged is that for elite level recruits like this, there is a certain, like they, they look into those types of guys, even if there's not necessarily a obvious red flag. Um, they're going to look into those types of guys. And so with Bagley, there are red flags. He changed schools. Like he's somebody who, uh, born in Arizona or I don't know, like, uh, like w w from Arizona was raised in Arizona, went to high school in California. Like once upon a time played with it. People forget this. This was the craziest. Like if I were starting an amateur investigation, this is where I'd start. You know who he used to play AAU ball for summer ball, grassroots ball, a team out of Nashville. All right. Why Marvin Bagley playing with a summer team in Nashville? 
like I went to a party in Nashville one night. It was I don't want to even get specific about it, but it was like a lot of movers and shakers. And there was this guy there, and uh, somebody introduced me to him, and uh, and it was somebody who was connected to Marvin Bagley. This was like three years ago in Nashville. And I was like, why is this guy here? And then you start looking at some of the other people who were there, agents and whatever. And it's like, okay, okay, well, this is weird. But, like, there's a guy in Nashville connected to Marvin Bagley at a party filled with agents. And, um, and like, what, what, what in the world is Marvin Bagley playing for a team out of Nashville anyway? Like, the idea that that could be, like, a real thing, that that happened, and he just got – he was cleared as an amateur within a week. Like seems like if I were a college basketball fan who hates Duke, that's where I would start. The skepticism is like, yo, man, how did you, you know, why does it take, I don't know, who's the most recent other player who really had to endure amateurism questions? There was, uh, I mean, there was concern that Aiton would get qualified or not. I mean, in uh, the same class. Yeah. Um, but like in recent years like didn't some of these things drag on and drag on and drag on well, yeah like um well feels, it depends, feels depends like, on like like feels like josh selby it feels like josh selby took a selby. long time yeah yeah they had a couple uh and for good reason they were like taking extra benefits so no no without, without a doubt and I, let me be and i want to be very very clear i'm not saying or even suggesting marvin bagley or his family ever did anything a single thing inappropriate i'm just saying when a kid from Arizona is playing grassroots basketball with a team out of Nashville, like that's like you, you wonder why. And I think the idea that um, and perhaps they wondered why and looked into it and there's nothing there and whatever. But like that's the shocking part to me. If the transcript looks good, the transcript looks good. But with a consensus, number one player in America, the idea that he could get cleared for, uh, from an amateurism perspective so clearly is what well, that was surprising to me. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, as we get closer to the season, we'll be discussing Duke and Bagley plenty, um, and perhaps, perhaps he'll talk about more about his upbringing, where he's come from, <laughs> and his path to Duke. But it, uh, yeah, I mean, Duke's the favorite to win the the title. Uh, now this is official, and they will certainly be. I'm still sticking with Zona as my number one team heading into the season, but uh, Duke is crazy compelling now because I want to see these. You know, you still got Wendell Carter, you've got Gary Trent Jr. Uh, poor Mark, poor Marquis Bolton. Poor Marquis Bolton. I know. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like he's thinking about transferring, not transferring, yeah. turning pro, not turning pro, and then like he decides, okay, I'll stay because I'll at least like be in the rotation. And then Marvin Bagley shows up. Uh, I know. It, it's just we'll see if it works. We'll see if it clicks. Um, it should be. Uh, it should be interesting. Rem- this is a, GP, we, we've set a record here. I don't think we've ever had a, an off-season podcast. I feel I'm like I feel like well you you got uh, you got two things that I'll get long winded about transfer rules and uh, the NCAA. I love it, man. It's right in my wheelhouse, Norlander. Without a doubt. For for better or worse, for better or worse. Remember, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via iTunes. So please do that. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. I promise you. Until then, 